Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hey there, thanks for listening to the podcast today. So today is something a little bit different. We're talking with Sean Amirati, who's a VC professor and author. He is a partner at Birchmere Ventures, Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Director of the Corporate Startup Lab at Carnegie Mellon. And he also is a host of Agile Giants podcast. We spend a lot of time talking about some of the differences between corporate startups and traditional startups. Talk a little bit about his book, uh, which is super interesting. We talk about Sean's past as an entrepreneur, which was also quite interesting. Uh, You can find his book, The Science of Growth, on Amazon. And if you would like to say thank you to Sean for being on the show, you can find him on the Twitters, uh, Sean Amirati. That's A-M-M-I-R-A-T-I, at Sean Amirati. And you can hit him up there if uh, if you want to reach out to him. Uh, Really enjoyed this episode. Hope you do as well. Thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Sean Amirati, who's a partner at Birchmere Ventures and a professor at CMU and co-founder and director of the Corporate Startup Lab at CMU. Sean, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Well, let's do, I I guess I'm going to have you do two quick pitches. Can you very quickly tell me about Birchmere Ventures? And then why don't you talk to me a little bit after that about what you're doing at the Corporate Startup Lab at CMU? Yeah. So Birchmere is a seed stage venture firm headquartered in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, with an office in San Francisco as well. And like, you know, many seed stage funds, we do SaaS marketplace businesses, you know, typically first institutional check. And, you know, the, the firm was started by my partner, Sean Sebastian, which sometimes makes things a little confusing because there's multiple Sean's. But Sean, myself, and and Ned Renzi are all former entrepreneurs turned VCs, uh, which I think is a little bit unique as a relative to a, a number of the other firms in the in the Midwest, especially. So that's the the sort of quick thumbnail there. And then, as you said, we also I also have a role at Carnegie Mellon University, which I'm guessing most of your audience is familiar with, and in fact probably have some CMU alums listening in today, which is great. So Carnegie Mellon is a well-known engineering and and business and school also happens to have a world-class drama program, which people may not be as familiar with, but spend most of my time on the the first part of that and been an entrepreneurship professor for 10 years there. And then four years ago, shortly after a book I wrote came out, started this lab called the Corporate Startup Lab, um, which has been a fun opportunity to flex some of my entrepreneurial muscles. And I think touches on something that you guys like to talk about here. You know, when I was a grad student at Carnegie Mellon 20 years ago, entrepreneurship was kind of the the ugly redheaded stepchild of, you know, higher ed, right? Often joke with people that when I say I left to do a startup 20 years ago, people were like, wow, you couldn't get a job in in banking or consulting. But, you know, fast forward 20 years, students pick graduate programs based on the quality of the entrepreneurship programs. And at Carnegie Mellon, we have a, a really great one. Um, and it's been fun to to build out this new lab, the Corporate Startup Lab, we can talk a little bit about and kind of carve out a, a unique niche and a differentiated position in the market. So real quick, because I'm, I'm not familiar with your complete background, what was the startup 
that you launched years ago and um, and exited from. Tell tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So my background is uh, I walked into my advisor's office in Pittsburgh and I told him uh, this when I was a research fellow and I said, hey, Richard, uh, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know one thing for sure. I am not going to be a professor. Uh, and I think I might be one of these these entrepreneurs. Illustrating, I think, one of many times in my career where I demonstrated that entrepreneurs are are often wrong, uh, but never <laughs> lack confidence. Right. right? And, uh, and so I left and I started a business called Peak Strategy, which was an AI startup when that was more of a, of a bug, not a feature for what it's Wait. worth. What timeline was this? When was this? Like this was you said two, 10 years ago, right? 20 years ago. I've been a teacher at Carnegie Mellon for 10 years, but this was 20 years ago. So this was 2001. That and I, AI startup in 2001. Heck yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, so we did, you know, and this is Carnegie Mellon, right? So CMU has been doing AI and machine learning. Literally, you know, you could argue new on Simon kind of created that field. Things have felt obvious and right around the corner at Carnegie Mellon for a long time that that don't in the rest of the world. And, and as a research student there, I was certainly influenced by that. I left to start a, an AI ML startup, specifically trying to do machine learning in quantitative finance. So run interesting genetic algorithms and other machine learning models over top of lots of historical data and predict stock movements. And ultimately, we sold that business to Morgan Stanley then in kind of an interesting sequence of transactions, still kept track of some of the underlying intellectual property around that. Then in 2006, 2007, started a second company that instead of predicting stock price movements, predicted whether a piece of content on the internet would be interesting to you or not. So instead of you searching for content, a la Google, we would help the right kind of content and ads find you. Ultimately, after a bunch of pivots there, we sold that business to LinkedIn. So it was their first acquisition actually before they went public. If you've logged into your LinkedIn account recently and you've seen LinkedIn today or gotten those, those emails from LinkedIn, you know, you're welcome or I'm sorry, depending on how you feel about that. But that's our technology <laughs> in action there. And then I ran, I, I did not start, but I joined and helped really scale up a, a, a blog that we really turned into a modern media business over a few years together called Read Write Web, which ultimately we sold to a PE roll-up, say, media. And it was towards the tail end of that startup that I, you know, proved, as I said, I'm, I'm often wrong, but never uncertain. I started coming back to campus and teaching an entrepreneurship class one night a week, uh, just just one one semester a year. And it was just a blast. And I realized as much fun as being an entrepreneur had been, I could really now spend my time helping other people be entrepreneurs. And, and really for the last 10 years, that's what I've been trying to do, support entrepreneurship. So some through investing, but also some through teaching. Uh, I wrote a book which has done better than, uh, frankly, the book probably even deserves. It's been an incredible success called The Science of Growth. It was translated into Korean and Chinese. It was an Audible bestseller as well as obviously the, the English edition that's opened up some speaking opportunities and stuff. But then as I've spent more and more time at Carnegie Mellon, I started thinking about some of the audiences for my book and things like that. And I became really interested in these corporate innovators and how large companies are in many ways trying to rediscover their entrepreneurial roots. And, and Mike, I know this is something you're very familiar with, with the work you do as well. And yep. part of what I, you know, it, there was this transition point and I'm, Actually, I would be curious if you had a similar one, but there's tr this transition point for me, which was 
in 2014, 2015, if you'd asked me what my job as an entrepreneurship professor was, I would have said, it's to convince people to not go work for Google, but instead start a startup, right? Because I believed everybody needed to be an entrepreneur. And I had this very focused view of an entrepreneur back then, which was, you know, three people in a proverbial or literal garage or accelerator hub or, or whatever, starting a brand new company with the goal of it becoming a big company. But when my book came out, part of what made the book so successful was a lot of these companies started buying the book and they bought it in not, you know, orders of three or four, but they bought it in orders of hundreds and in some cases thousands. And I realized all these companies are trying to rediscover their entrepreneurial roots. And I was skeptical. When I first started spending time with these guys, I was very skeptical. But over time, I've come to realize that there are certain challenges that frankly, the world desperately needs solved that are easier solved inside a large company. And that is sort of what sent me down this path of creating the corporate startup lab at Carnegie Mellon. I love that. When did you start the lab? What what time frame was that? So it, it started in 2017, really originally as an independent study with a bunch of talented students who'd taken my other classes. And, and the, the original work was more of a research project than even a formal initiative at that point, was simply asking two questions that I think are, are really important uh, for this corporate entrepreneurship work. One, how is a corporate startup similar and different from what I'll call a traditional startup? So for a traditional startup is three entrepreneurs in a proverbial garage, a corporate startup is three entrepreneurs inside a Fortune 500 company. So how are those similar and different? And then as we started unpacking that, the second and related question became, okay, now that we know how they're similar and different, let's ask this, uh, this additional follow-up question, which is based on the similarities and differences, what tools, techniques, best practices that work inside traditional entrepreneurship can we apply inside corporate entrepreneurship? And which ones do we need to build you know, new frameworks, new tools, new techniques, because corporate and traditional entrepreneurship are just not the same? All right. So I, I feel like you're expertly walking me down a path here. So I'll bite. How are they similar and different? <laughs> You're going to have to answer that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Sure. Uh, and, and we can take this conversation however you want to, Mike, to be clear. You're, no, I love it. Okay. Are, are you kidding me? This is great. Yeah. I, like, I'd love to know the answer to that. Okay. So, so, so there's some ways that I think they're very, very similar. The, the most obvious example is it's really important in both cases to get customer input into the product process as quickly as possible. I think the reason methodologies like you know, the lean startup methodology, a lot of Steve Blank's work around four steps of the epiphany. The reason why those are so powerful is because it really is based on this principle of, okay, get early feedback from customers incorporated into the, to the solution. Because in both traditional and corporate startups, you know, one of the failure points is building something that nobody wants, right? And so these, these methodologies are really helpful. Uh, there's some others as well, but two ways that they're really different, incredibly different, is one, how you finance them. There's no equivalent to my role at Birchmere funding these corporate initiatives. Yet companies are desperate to try to learn from how traditional venture works and apply it to their corporations. 
if you know, it's, your audience is more entrepreneurs, but for those who are corporate entrepreneurs, if you if your company has ever done a Shark Tank experience, then you've fallen into this trap. That's a particularly terrible example because of two points. One, even traditional entrepreneurs aren't funded like it looks like on the TV show. I always right. say Shark Tank is to venture like ER is to a real hospital room, the, the drama ER, right? They're, they're just a bad analogy. But also, that's not how it works, right? We, we need different funding models because you're not funding with external financing events that are happening every 12 to 18 months. Another example that's really important is, you know, traditional entrepreneurs don't need to spend a ton of time thinking about how their vision fits into a larger organization strategy, org chart, all, all of those kind of things, divisions, right? But, but for corporate entrepreneurship, that's really important. Questions like how big could this be and where does this fit into our overall strategy are really important for corporate entrepreneurs. Those are just noise for traditional entrepreneurs. And so that impacts things like, you know, at the front end, I think tools like the business model canvas are incredibly important. They're, they're, they're really helpful, but they're, they're missing some boxes for corporate entrepreneurs because remember, in corporate entrepreneurship, a $100 million a year business may just not be that interesting to them. You know, that's the coffee bill inside a lot of these Fortune 500s. Right. I mean, that, I mean those are some examples. I mean, literally, we could do as much as you want on that. But those are some, some examples. I'll let you take it from here. Yeah. Can we go back to that early feedback piece? Sure. Um, I, this is a recency bias. I, I just learned about like the whole FedEx original kind of sales debacle where they, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not, but when they were trying to launch the very first FedEx flights, they anticipated based on sales projections, that they were going to have like, you know, 300 to 400 packages on that first flight, which is still nothing. It's still a, a super small number relative to what you can put on a plane. But like, that's what they were projecting. Founder of FedEx is, you know, in New York trying to fundraise and is like totally, he's not in Nashville or is it Nashville? Memphis. Memphis, thank you. Yeah, he's not in Memphis and uh, and and wants to be there because they're launching that night. And so he's like frantically calling constantly to to get the number of packages. And you know his team ends up calling him at like midnight, and the number is six, yep. six packages, right? From so they went from like a sales forecast of you know hundreds down to down to six. And it you know to me, while they were a startup at the time, they were not the FedEx that we know today, right? They, so they would have been a startup, but it it really exemplified what I see as one of the big problems of customer feedback in a large enterprise, which is when you have to filter feedback through so many layers and and so many perverse incentives that exist in that organization, right? That that may not exist in a in a much smaller three people in a garage startup. How do you protect against that? So when you're talking with your corporate startup clients, like how do you coach them through navigating that that kind of paradox of of feedback? Well, so my, you know, again, as you said, FedEx at that point was a traditional startup, not a corporate startup. But in, in yep. both cases, I would argue this is true. And this actually gets to some of the, the work we've done around the, the science of growth, the, the stuff that happened before actually the corporate startup lab even. I think one of the misnomers about entrepreneurship is that there's words we use that lots of people, they use the same word and they mean different things. So, and launch is a great example of that, <laughs> right? So we tend to think about businesses launching with a bang. And, and unfortunately, the increasing popularity of media 
focusing on entrepreneurship has actually exacerbated this problem. So if I said to people listening to this, you know, where did Twitter, when did Twitter launch? When yeah. did Twitter launch? Most people would say, oh, Twitter launched March of 2017 at South by Southwest. Now the actual tape would show Twitter had been around for months and months and months, almost a year at that point. What happened at South by Southwest was where Twitter blew up, right? That, you know, I, I was actually at the, the festival that year and it was, it became this kind of catalyzing moment that accelerated their growth, but it was much after the launch, right? And so I think that's, that's sort of one thing you have to be, be careful on this is, are you, are you launching something? And so therefore do those metrics like number of customers make sense? Or are you really still just figuring out, you know, earlier in the customer development model, like what the real problem is and, and how you solve it? You know, I think for a lot of basically corporate and tr traditional entrepreneurs, I would argue a lot of things that, that we later think about as like, oh, well, the product was out there. It's like, no, that was still, still part of the customer discovery. You know, remember, entrepreneurs are great at coming up with the right solutions but the market is great at telling them what the problem says. You know, one of the things that that people will often cite, kind of similar to that FedEx story, is like the Henry Ford quote. Well, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Right. Turns out he never said that. By the way, um, my friend Patrick Flaskowitz actually called the Ford Museum uh, to figure that out, and and he's he never actually did say that. But I actually don't think that's what customers would have told Henry Ford either. I'm not a horse guy, but if I'd asked people who are horse people, like that they're using a horse for daily transportation, what do they want? I think they would have said things like a horse I don't have to clean up after, a horse that never has to sleep, a horse that isn't moody depending on the day, you know, some days wants to work, some days doesn't. And the combustion engine, at least at the time, was a pretty interesting solution to those problems. Or the, the more recent example you have people say is like, well, I, don't, I didn't know I wanted an iPhone until the iPhone came out. It's absolutely true. I didn't know I wanted a single pane of glass mobile phone until the iPhone came out. But I absolutely could have told you the problem with my BlackBerry, which was it was terrible at non-textual communication. Amazing at textual communication, not great at non-textual. And so, you know, in both those cases, I think the customers know the problem. The entrepreneur comes up with the solution, right? The combustion engine or a single pane of glass. In fact, on the BlackBerry example, just because there there is some recent experience there, I was addicted to my BlackBerry. I would have told you for sure the solution is not get rid of the keyboard on my BlackBerry. But I would not have known that, but I could have told you the problem. Like when I get off the subway in New York, I I've dealt with all my text emails, but not my, my visual emails. And so understanding where you are in the process is really, really important in, in both settings. It's important for traditional entrepreneurs as they manage their interactions with their investors. And it's really, really important internally in a large corporation when you're you're managing these different stakeholders. One last point on, on this managing stakeholders that I think it leads to the brilliance of the original question that I, that I jumped off here. One other big difference between traditional and corporate entrepreneurs is corporate entrepreneurs, a single no is much, much more devastating. Because there's a thousand VCs, if, if one of your traditional entrepreneurs gets you know, negative feedback from a venture investor, they're hoping to finance their next round, they can just walk down the street and talk to the, to the next VC, right? Whereas if you think about traditional entrepreneur or corporate entrepreneurship, I'm sorry, think about corporate entrepreneurship, if the CEO or the CMO says no, well, they're, they're, you can't go pitch the next CMO. 
right? right. You're, you're not out. going above their head to the board. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. So a no is really devastating, which I think leads to some of these why these challenges are so important in terms of managing where you are in the process, talking about the process, taking a portfolio approach, a bunch of these other things. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Can I jump tracks a little bit? I'd love to get your opinion on a, a, com- a competition problem that I've seen a couple of times with corporate startups. Sure. Uh, and I, I feel like your background is pretty interesting around this. So it, at Birchmere, you guys look at SaaS marketplaces, right? Yep. And I'm, I'm assuming that's not like just e-commerce, that's marketplaces of all different types. Is that's that right. Fair? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So we've seen a pattern with a couple of corporate startups where they've been in a conundrum where they see a marketplace opportunity that they want to go after, right? Where where they see themselves and all of their competitors missing an opportunity because they're competing and they're not collaborating in a marketplace. And so they're, you know, they they kind of struggle to figure out how do we go build that marketplace that we can then be a member of, but get all of our competitors in it as well. But if they know we built it, they won't come, right? How do you, I'm sure you've seen that. How do you start to navigate that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think part of the challenge around what you just laid out is that large companies, existing lines of businesses have a real challenge pivoting their business model, right? So we talk a lot about, you know, business model. We talk a lot about digital transformation, right? That's kind of buzzword bingo inside corporations today. You know, one of the things I like to talk to corporates about is digital transformation is table stakes. It's business model transformation. That's where real value gets created. Because the reason a lot of these companies are doing this, right, is they're looking at someone like a Google or an Amazon and they're saying, hey, I want the same multiples on my revenue that they're getting on theirs. And it's like, well, you don't have the same business model they do. You know, the, the two common examples are, frankly, moving from transactional revenue to subscription revenue, right? And that's not always SaaS even, but just you're seeing more and more of the world, you know, yeah. bundling offers up and doing subscription. And then as you, as you just laid out, right, the, this marketplace where you're making, you're, you're delivering value by facilitating connections, and then you're, you're monetizing some type of value across those connections that you facilitated. And I think it's really hard for a company to say, okay, let's do either of those models where we just take our existing, you know, department or whatever, or business unit or kind of whatever the the terminology is for that corporation and have them turn on this additional revenue stream of a marketplace or subscription. I found what works much, much better is to actually create a new brand and a small team within that and treat them as a unique group and have that group go out and start those conversations. And they can talk about that first customer, you know, as the 
the large corporation. And certainly you're not going to lie and not say that you're not part of it. You know, we did this with a safety company in um, Pittsburgh called MSA Safety. They launched a product called Safety.io, which was, uh, it's not marketplace, it's a subscription revenue model, but the same thing. And, you know, they were clear Safety.io powered by MSA, but it was a sort of new group, new positioning, new branding. And I think it changed people's interaction with that corporate startup. I think where you see a lot of these, a lot of these marketplace or subscription offerings really fail is when you're trying to do it with the existing team and the existing business unit. You know, the, the revenue is never going to be material to meet that management team's KPIs. Uh, there's just a bunch of challenges when you try to integrate it within the existing group. I think it's much easier to break it out as a standalone initiative. What are some of the different ways you've seen that structured successfully inside of a company? I think it's really helpful to to carve it out as a separate group. I think there's some things where you can I can point to good examples either way, but they're they're they were clear whichever choice they made. So there are groups who will tell you it's incredibly important for that small subset of the team to have unique upside just based on that subset. So PNC Bank is another group that that does work with our lab and they've created an entity called Numo, right? Which is a separate group. And the people who work at Numo have upside based on the success or failure of the initiatives that Numo launches. There are other people who will argue just as passionately, like, no, we have one currency at this company. And so, you know, the success and the financial rewards for that group need to be driven by overall company performance in terms of long-term. So there's sort of no shadow equity, no nothing like that. And those have worked out well as well. I think where things get murky is where they're not clear on this. A- another thing I think that that is really helpful is give them enough time to work on this that you know they're able to to go through the full development process that I was talking about earlier, right? The, the full iterations, uh, sort of discovering the customer need, testing and prototyping different solutions, and and then ultimately figuring out what you want to scale up around that. And then the third thing, I, third piece of advice on that that I would say is it's it's kind of crazy that, but companies do this where they try to like evaluate this strategy based on one initiative, and I think the reason that they do this is they think like, well, you know, I uh, I had this other big capital expenditure, you know, building another factory or opening a bunch of retail stores, and and you know, I could evaluate those, you know, idea by idea because you know the the results of it were they kind of look like a bell curve, right? They're kind of plus or minus one standard deviation of the of the mean there. Whereas when you think about this transformative innovation, the, the, the results look more like a power lock curve. A lot don't work out, but the ones that work out, work out so significantly that they pay back all the rest. And, and the problem is if you've got something with a power lock curve, then evaluating the success of the initiative after one probabilistically means you're going to be just evaluating a failure and that's going to kind of send you down the wrong path. So what I like to, to say is like, let's look at this from a portfolio perspective, right? Let's look at this across a 10, 15 initiatives where maybe you take those 10, 15 initiatives, spend a, a little bit of money on each of them, focus in on, you know, half or a third of those, and then maybe double down on the, on the few that are working the best. So the the work and the, the sort of overall innovation work looks more like my venture portfolio than it does any one given startup in that portfolio. So I'm super interested in 
in structure or maybe different structures that you've seen, right? Because you could do that inside the company. You could create a corporate uh, venture capital arm of your company, which would you know potentially even be a separate entity, right? That could do that work for you of of managing the portfolio. Like, you, so I, I would say, so I do think CVC. I mean, this is us. <laughs> I think CVCs are a hidden. You know, they're they're underutilized in general. I, I um, a podcast, Agile Giants, where I interview a lot of CVCs, and I, I think companies are not getting nearly the impact that they should from corporate venture these days. But I would say just for context, I think the CVC structure is more of an outside-in innovation strategy where you're trying to find innovations outside the walls of your company and bring them in. Whereas I think the stuff we've been talking about up till this point is much more inside out, right? It's taking the assets, the team, the the intellectual property, the incumbency advantages of the organizations and and launching things like marketplace businesses, subscription businesses, things like that from from the inside out. In terms of legally how you structure it, you know, most groups have ended up creating a subsidiary uh, that I think have had a lot of success with it. But then it gets to this question of that subsidiary, is it 100% owned by the company or is it you know, majority owned by that subsidiary, but there's also equity for the people participating in the work for the on the company's behalf, similar to like a an option pool or a, or a carve out you might see for a management team in a traditional startup. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's also a company in our past that talked quite a bit about that a multinational company, many many different countries, very regulated, and they also talked about the advantages of spinning out new companies that weren't even subsidiaries spinning them out entirely um, for the reasons of regulatory oversight where that company as a startup which as a subsidiary it would not be viewed as a startup from regulatory agencies mm-hmm. got a lot more leeway in terms of what they could do and the speed that they could move and then once it became successful you know as, assuming that startup became successful because it, it it's not always a foregone conclusion they would then just go and acquire it Right and uh, and pull it back into the the organization that way, and then deal with all the multinational regulatory compliance issues, which to to me is probably you know like the biggest version of that I've I've heard of right as a as a way to to kind of fast track a, a regulatory process. But I think a, a lot of similarities, even on a smaller scale, with uh, companies that don't have that uh, concern. Yeah, uh, we could literally. I mean, I think it would put most of your audience to sleep, but we could literally talk for the next eight hours about. <laughs> regulation on this um it's it's a fascinating element of this both strengths and weaknesses you know being in a highly regulated industry and how you structure these things i'll just give two really quick examples of that I that i think that. illustrate the point so numo the group within pnc launched a bank account for gig economy workers called indie right so if you think about someone driving an uber or a or a freelance web developer, right? That, that that bank account is not quite an individual bank account, but it's not quite a business bank account either. And you can imagine all the different ways that it, you know that this would be kind of a it would sort of sit somewhere in the middle. What Indie has done, which is interesting, is they've taken advantage though of the fact that PNC is a large player in a regulated space because PNC has already taken care of a lot of the regulatory hurdles that a normal startup would not be able to take advantage of, right? Like it, it, it's much harder to convince 
the FDIC that you and your two co-founders with $25,000 from a local accelerator are a good <laughs> are a good risk versus, you know, the one of the 10 largest banks in the US. Well, I mean, if you phrase it that way, sure. <laughs> so, so that's like that's like one cut at this regulation, right, where you can kind of use it as an advantage. We also do some work with United Healthcare Group, which is the largest insurer in in the US uh, by quite a bit. It's the sixth largest company in the United States period right now. And UHG has within this massive business a massive software company inside of it. Many folks, since you have a lot of connections in the Midwest, you certainly know these guys. There's Optum, which is basically the largest software company you've never heard of, right? It's a over a hundred billion dollar software technology company inside of a of the world's largest insurance company. For perspective, that's like three sales forces that we're talking about here. That's how big the healthcare industry is these days. And Optum both builds technology for United and then also builds it for all the other insurers, right? So other insurance companies work with Optum to do similar automation. And there's there's interesting governance things here. That context though, healthcare, similar to finance, is a very regulated business, right? And Optum has worked with us to create a program called the Optum Startup Studio. You can go to optumstartupstudio.com to see this. And what it is, is it's basically this first customer program where Optum can work with these innovative companies, give them, you know, this kind of first customer interaction, do proof of concepts, bring in United and Optum experts as subject matter experts, and and really accelerate these businesses based on that. And and so that's kind of a a good outside-in example of doing innovation inside a regulated, regulated space. I love that. Talk to me a little bit about early on, you, you know, you, you'd ask the question, how are corporate startups and traditional startups similar and different? Yeah. And then um, you said the next question was then based on those simul- similarities and differences, what works? What, based on the similarities, what were some of the things that you found that are pretty consistent across corporate and traditional startups? So on the similarity side, I think, uh, Again, the, a lot of the lean startup methodology is the same. So what a lot of people would call, you know, the importance of building MVPs or what I call MAPs for minimally awesome products and services instead of viable. Too many entrepreneurs think viable and, and think crappy in their head. But, you know, building out these maps of, of really interesting early prototypes, things like that, that's, that's a, a technique that works really well in both settings. I think how you go about building personas for your customers, some of the design thinking techniques that have worked well, both in traditional and corporate startups work really, really well across both those. I think the business model canvas is a very useful tool in both settings, but I would say, and this, this sort of, maybe it's a hybrid answer. You know, I think the business model canvas is very helpful, but I would say for most corporate entrepreneurs, I would encourage them to also use a tool we created at CSL called the corporate startup canvas which is kind of a companion or complementary tool to round out some of the other important questions around corporate entrepreneurship. So the corporate startup canvas is, again, this, this complementary tool to the business model canvas. And, and again, I think business model canvas is awesome, but I would encourage entrepreneurs in the corporate setting to also look at their corporate tools. The, the last thing that I would say is um, I do think there's just, and this is less a tool and more just a, 
how you think about structuring it. I do think there's a lot of lessons that companies can take from how traditional startups are structured, you know, the, the, the team composition stuff. And I think this is why you see so many traditional entrepreneurs often getting more and more involved in these corporate entrepreneurship initiatives. You know, it's a very, very common thing for me to meet someone who's running innovation for a fortune 500. And it's like, Oh, then they'd done two startups earlier in their career. I will say I'm, I'm interested in studying this more. And it's, it's an ongoing research project inside the lab, because I do wonder if they're similar to the business model canvas, maybe some, some lessons that are similar and also some opportunities to kind of add some additional context that's important in a corporate setting. But those are, are really some of the, some of the similarities. Got it. And then contrast for me, when you're looking at in a, a possible investment at Birchmere versus an opportunity, which, you know, you won't, you wouldn't obviously wouldn't be investing in the corporate startup, but when you're evaluating, uh, you know, a corporation comes to you at the startup lab and says, Hey, we're thinking about doing X, Y, Z. I'm, I'm sure you're looking at it with the same kind of lens, you know, maybe slightly different, but you're probably asking a lot of the same things, right? Do they have the right team? Do they have capital? Do they, you know, like, do they have access to the market in the right ways? Yep. What are some of those kind of, actually, I'd I'd be more interested in the differences. What's different about evaluating a a corporate startup that you would invest in and investing is in quotes? Yeah. You know, maybe you would give a, a, a buy sign to like, yeah, you guys should go do this versus no, you, you should definitely not go do this for these reasons. What What's different when you look at a corporate venture versus a traditional venture? Yeah. And, and actually, you know, often the buy, just to be clear on sort of how we get to buys on those for what it's worth, is inviting them to do a capstone project or a fellowship or some other kind of collaboration between my lab and the, and the company, right? We have, we run this program once a year where lots and lots of companies pitch us on like, hey, we want to work with you and your lab to build out one of these corporate startups, right? So, you know, things like the safety IO example that I mentioned that that started inside inside this lab. Uh, Indy, the finance product for gig economy workers, right? Indy started as a, I mean, it was going concern inside NEMA, but they did a project with us to, to kind of flush that out with my grad students. And so we have way more companies pitching us on working with us in that way than we have slots in the capstone project course. So that's, that's probably the, the equivalent to the buy side for what it's worth, you know, and it, for them, it's like, okay, I get six grad students from Carnegie Mellon to spend four months as almost outsourced engineers on this idea, right? It's kind of a, a no brainer for, for them for pretty modest cost to do that. So we have lots of companies pitching us on that and very few that we actually can accept because we can only do five or six a year. And the way we evaluate those is gets to exactly the heart of this question. And this is different than how I'm evaluating investment at Birchmere. I think the question that becomes really important when you're talking about a corporate startup that is just not involved at all when you're talking about a traditional startup is this challenge of the why that company, or to put it another way, so what's the incumbency advantage of that company? You know, an idea like gig economy, bank account for gig economy workers, or the subscription product that we did for the for the industrial safety company was basically doing machine learning on top of the data that their sensors were were delivering, right? Both of those are actually really interesting venture businesses. But if you were looking at that as a venture business, you'd quickly get tripped up 
on the things that are very easy for the corporate to do, but would be really hard for a small startup to do, right? It, you know, how do you get a bank charter for the VC? Yeah. How do you get enough sensors pushing their data into the cloud to do the predictive analytics? Well, you know, MSA has a lot of those. They have a large percentage of the, of the market of, of industrial sensors, so they can just turn that on, right? So you have this answer for like, okay, here's the, the YMSA or the YPNC. And I think this is important because if the corporate startup is just trying to do something that makes a ton of sense, but they don't have any inherent advantage to attacking it, if it's a really good idea, a traditional startup is probably going to move faster and out-execute them. But if the corporate startup doesn't need to go as far, or frankly, it's just not possible to be done in a traditional setting, now you've really got white space where a, a corporate startup can attack that problem and go after it. I love that answer. Thank you. That's awesome. All right. I think I've, I've probably kept you long enough. Sean, if folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? The, the best way is probably just on Twitter. It's Sean Amirati on Twitter. I also have a, a website, seanamirati.com, where they can, they can reach out to contact me there. I also would say if the corporate startup stuff is interesting to them, would encourage them to go to corporatestartuplab.com and see all the work we're doing at Carnegie Mellon there. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this. I might actually want to sit down and talk to you again at some point about uh, CVCs. That could be that could also be a fun conversation. Yeah, I would I would love to do that. I mean, I think you know there are companies doing it well, but I think so many companies are just leaving some some really incredible value on the table by not running a, an aggressive CVC program these days. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time and um, good luck with uh, everything you're doing at CMU. Thanks, Mike. You too. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.